Good morning and welcome to Waypoint Church online. As you see, as you see, uh, it's still not face to face as we'd love it to be. Uh, but we love the fact that you're with us, that you are choosing to um, to spend time with us online. Uh, hopefully, we'll get to meet. If you're new, if you're not new, then you're just as welcome to Waypoint Church, and we love that you are a part of the family here. Yeah, let's, let's just spend a bit of time now just praying and inviting the Spirit. I mean, he's already here, but inviting the Spirit and just to be really focusing on what God wants to do with us today. And then we'll just go into a time of worship and then we'll um, hear the word for today and uh, unpack that together. Yeah, come Lord Jesus, thank you. Holy Spirit that you are here. Holy Spirit that you are. You are here. Lord, wherever here is, in the, in the craziness of having breakfast and kids everywhere or on the bus or in the, in the quiet of our, sat in our bed, wherever it is we are engaging with this, Lord, you are here, you're with us. And you see us, you love us. Spirit, thank you. And Lord, just uh, as we spend time together now, Lord, just help us to, as much as possible, to not be distracted, to be able to lift our eyes to you, to lift our uh, eyes to what it is you're wanting to say and do. Lord, have hearts that are open to your, to your um, challenge this morning, your encouragement this morning. Lord, whatever uh, you want to say, not what I say, not what I say, not what we think, but what you want to do. Lord Jesus, just come and have your way. Minister to us this morning. I pray. Amen. Amen. Today's reading is taken from Romans 2 verses 1 to 16. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on the truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile but glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God doesn't show favouritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not for those who hear the law who are righteousness in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bear witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. 
This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. It's great, isn't it, to better worship together? And uh, hello, by the way, if you've just joined us, you've just missed our worship time and our introduction, but please catch us up um, uh, a bit later on if you can. Uh, my name's Jim. If you've missed that part, one of the leaders here at the church, it's great that you can join us. And um, many of you will know, but if you don't, I'm about to tell you that we are now into week four of our new series. I was putting it like new now, but it's called Unashamed, just looking at the book of Romans, Paul's book to the church in Rome. And I'm going to do a quick recap for us, a bit like those TV programs, but it does this, you know, we're the ones that you skip, but don't skip this, okay, because it's important. So oh, four weeks ago, Keith gave, a, gave us an overview, some key principles, key things of what it means to be an unashamed a disciple for Jesus Christ, what it means to follow Jesus. And uh, that was a really great first week. I know it set up a lot of interest and a lot of buzz as well around people. So, uh, and that seems to have continued, which is fantastic. Uh, then second week, I talked about really that first sentence in Romans uh, chapter one, verse one, that, G that Paul is a servant, or as we found out, is a slave of Christ Jesus. And it's so important for us to understand that our identity as being a slave for Christ Jesus has, a, has quite a big impact on how we then live, which is what we'll talk a little bit more about um, today, actually. And then last week, Keith talked about the understanding, knowing the gospel that we communicate. You know, knowing the gospel and then being able to communicate is so important, important to being an unashamed uh, disciple of Jesus Christ. And he used this word, didn't he, methetis, and I hope I've said that right. Methetis, we get our word mass from it. I'm going to use this analogy. Um, but what he explained was that, you know, you know when you do like a maths exam and um, it, I was rubbish at maths, by the way. So as soon as he mentioned this, I was like sweating. I was flashbacks, all sorts of stuff. But anyway, um, when he, you know, that when we in a, in a maths exam, if you get, you can get the answer wrong, but you can still get points for your working out. Right. Does that make sense? Which is often what I did. Although most of my working out was just doodles and stuff, but never mind. Um, but it's that sense, Mathetes is basically a disciple, it's a Greek word, and it means that you continue to learn and to grow and to, and to work out your salvation, to work out its impact on you, but also to work out its impact um, on the world around you, how you live, really. And that learning and that working and that growing is really important as we get to grips with the gospel through Romans. It's so good, like I said, that you, some of you are really, really grabbing hold of this stuff and it's really challenging you. Uh, continue to feed that back because it's great. But kind of moving on a little bit today because it's one thing to know the gospel, right? It's one thing to know the gospel, one thing to know the gospel that we communicate, but it's another thing to be able to live it out. And that's really what we're going to be focusing on today, that being an unashamed disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who chooses to live righteously. An unashamed disciple chooses to live righteously. Now, to kind of get us through this journey today, I want to highlight three people groups. There's the, the selfish people group, the self-righteous people group, and the righteous people group. And the, really the first one, the first people group, the selfish people group, aren't in the passage that we heard earlier. Um, but I think they pay, play a kind of a key role in, in understanding kind of the, the walk that we've been on, or, or maybe that we're on, actually. If you're new, if you're new you'd never... Uh, who, know who Jesus is yourself, then hopefully this will help you a little bit today. Now, Keith last week finished with the good news, right? That we're made right through Jesus Christ. We're made right with God. We're acceptable to God because Jesus died and rose again on the cross and we can accept that forgiveness and that love. 
and that that is what it means to be made righteous. This, that's the good news, okay? And then Romans 1.8, and I won't spend too long on this, is kind of the bad news, right? Is, is, so I'm kicking off with some bad news today. And this is really important for us to understand because it introduces a character or a nature or part of who God is, right? And that is God's wrath as well, or wrath, depending on what part of the country you come from. I say wrath, don't judge me for it. Um, now, the wrath of God is probably not a characteristic that we particularly like to think about. We like to think about his love and his mercy and his kindness and his goodness, of course, right? Key characteristics and, and the, of, of the nature of who God is. But having a fuller understanding of this nature of God should help us as we work out with fear and trembling, as the Bible says, in awe and in respect, in humility, our faith, our salvation. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? You know. So the first people group I'm flagging up that Paul flags up in Romans 1:18 is the Gentiles, the Gentiles and God's wrath. You know, the, these Gentiles they were living life however they wanted to live, unrighteous, abandoned to to their own decisions, their own consequences. You know, they, they abandoned their knowledge of God, it says. Their conscience didn't really, you know, they tried to, to suppress their consciences. They wanted to pursue their kind of their selfish living. And so they started to worship created things. They started to worship each other. You know, and what we see, though, is, is God's wrath. Now, when you think of wrath, you might think of, like, when you get detention and your parents, like, you, they go crazy at you. You might think of anger or revenge or fierce, just a fierceness when you think of wrath. But it's really interesting to note, I find it interesting anyway, is that God's wrath comes across in almost like a stepping aside, in giving them over, you know, abandoning them, not them, but actually abandoning them to their actions, their consequences, you know. It's a really interesting understanding of what it means for God's wrath. It's a bit like, and this is a bad, it's, it's not a full analogy, so don't judge me on this, but it, it's a bit like, um, you know when, you, you, know when you, you do something really bad and you know when your parents are gonna find out you're expecting them to go crazy, you know, the full works, the, the grounding, they're not allowed to do this, that, that, but they just look at you and they just go, just really disappointed in you, you know? And then they sort of just, they still love you, but there's a separation there. It's killer, isn't it? The truth of it, that was, that was all our position, you know? If you're now a Jesus follower, that was our position once, that we were abandoned to pursue our own agenda outside of God's preferred agenda for us, right? And actually, Paul goes on to say, before we get to chapter, the beginning of chapter 2, he goes on to say that that agenda, that selfish living, leads to eternal separation, leads to death. That's what God's wrath really looks like. Anyway, you can imagine now the people, as we get into chapter 2, you can imagine now the, the audience, the listeners in, in the book of Romans chapter, two, Romans chapter 2, thinking, yeah, Paul, nail them, like, go for it. Yeah, you deserve, Gentiles, you deserve God's wrath, you know. Keep going, Paul. Stick the boot in as well. So Paul decides to ramp things up a little bit, right, and he turns to them and he says, you're inexcusable too. You're inexcusable too. You can imagine like the collective goal, because these were like Jewish converts, right? They were like, they, they kind of got it, right? They were the morally upright. There, was, there were Greek people in the church. There were Roman philosophers in the church. There were judges by profession in the church. These were the, 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 you know, the keepers of the law. They were law-abiding people. They were good, upright people. They were religious people. 
Now I want to hang around here a little bit because I think Paul is addressing something that perhaps that if you're, if you're listening or watching this and you're a Jesus follower, that perhaps we can all slip into sometimes. Now you may not know this, but I've got two older brothers actually. And uh, Simon, who's seven, eight years older than me, and Mark, who's nearly 10 years older than me. I think that's right. Um, anyway. Um, anyway, so I was always kind of witness to some interesting moments being the youngest brother and uh, some of them would be fights uh, some of them would be interesting language and when that happened i would like go run downstairs and I'd go mom marks and she would stop me halfway through and she'd be like stop telling tales and i'd be like right where's dad dad simon's and he'd stop me and go stop telling tales right and i'd be fuming because i'm like i'm not telling tales that's actually happened i'm not lying but it wasn't until i had kids of my own that I really understood what my parents were saying in that moment, probably partly because they just wanted peace and quiet, so it basically made me go away. But also, it, it, it was something a bit deeper. The meaning of Stop Telling Tales was something a bit deeper that I probably didn't quite comprehend at that younger age. Now, I love my kids, Amelie and Obi, right? Don't get me wrong, but if one of them is acting not particularly well, the other one becomes the behavior police, right? So if, if Amelie's done something a little bit dodge, Obi is like, um, stop doing it. And if she doesn't stop doing it, he's like, right, I'm going to go and tell Dad. And so, Dad, Amelie's doing, I'm like, here we go. Stop telling tales. <laughs> You're both as bad as each other. My parents were actually saying to me when I was younger, you're not all sweetness and light either. Stop being so hypocritical. You know, when I was chatting to Keith about this in the week, he said, he's like the king of phrases. He said, it's like a slug calling a frog slimy, right? It's like a slug calling a frog, slimy. Stop putting the hypocritical finger. And this really, this is the attitude that Paul is attacking in Romans 2, this self-righteous attitude, better than anyone else. You would never do anything wrong yourself. Self-righteousness is basically confidence in one's own righteousness, that you can somehow, you can somehow generate within yourself a, right, a, righteous, a form of righteousness that is acceptable to God, right? It's legalism in the Bible basically, rules and regulations for achieving and growing in spiritual um, salvation. Now, the Jewish law, as some of you might know, is quite vast, it's quite big. There's 613 laws altogether, um, and some of them are positive and some of them are negative. So do those, abstain, don't do those. And these, these, these laws were there to help the Jews to kind of live an acceptable way before God, you know, to, to, I guess in some ways, to get to and maintain righteousness. Now, following the law had its positives, its benefits, but also it could create this kind of false sense of security and superiority as well. You read about this in Luke 18, uh, verses 9 to 14, where a Pharisee uh, and a tax collector go into uh, the temple to pray, and the Pharisee basically goes, thank you, God, that I'm not like him. Thank you that I'm not an evil or sinful person. I don't do bad stuff like him. And to prove it, God, I will, in, my, in, in this moment, I will say this, my benchmark is because I, I fast and I give a tenth. You know, and then kind of cuts to the, it cuts to the, the tax collector who basically beats the chest and just says, I'm, you know, God, Lord, have mercy on me. You know, I'm not good. Interestingly, Jesus goes on to say, you know, that he, that one, that, one who asked for mercy, who humbled himself as the one who is justified before God. Now, of course, there are many positive things, like I said, that clear guidance helps you with when you, when you, you know, choosing to live a good life. But that can suddenly become the benchmark on which you judge yourself. I'm living a good life because I'm choosing to do good things. You know, I'm sticking to the law. 
uh, and then you kind of judge other people by the same standard as well. Now, it wasn't necessarily a big issue. Paul wasn't saying this in Romans chapter 2 because it became it was a big issue in the church. But there was clearly some strong Jewish culture influences in there. And even some scholars say that the Jewish and the Greek, sorry, the Greek and the Roman early converts as well were kind of adapting to, adopting some of the Jewish traditions at the time. So Paul was kind of highlighting this a little bit more in Romans 2 verse 17 and really kind of gets into the law a little bit more. So he's wanting to tackle this stuff, right? Really early on, really early on, before it takes root in their thinking, in their application of the gospel um, and begins to kind of muddy things a little bit. So Paul is addressing everyone now. He's saying that no one, no one is not guilty. No one is not guilty of doing the kind of sins that, they, that you see about in Romans chapter 1. So he immediately brackets this kind of religious group, the self-righteous group in with the Gentiles. He labels them as sinners. He demolishes any idea that they are morally better, that no amount of good works that they've done or can do, or law-keeping or, or good behaviour, whatever it might be, has, has saved them from being sinners. That they need to, like the Gentiles, repent. And if they choose not to, that is stubbornness, as it says. You know, that they are not outside of judgment themselves. It leaves them in a really naked position, right? They've, they're being left here feeling guilty and vulnerable, stripping away all their superiority and their security. And then he introduces another key characteristic of God at this point, and this is God as judge. He basically says, only God who is, who is truth. You know, Jesus is the way, the truth. God is truth, can judge. And he judges all people unbiasedly, he's, he's impartial, he shows no favourites, there's no preferential treatment. Paul leaves his audience, the listeners, with nowhere to turn. Till there's this weird glimpse in verse 6 where he almost starts speaking their language again. He says, God will give to each person according to what he or she has done. And in this section, really, Paul is kind of referring back to um, Proverbs and Psalms, the universal truth that God will give to each person for the works that they've done. In essence, those who persist in doing good receive eternal life, and those who persist or are self-seeking and doing evil, theirs will be wrath. Jesus talks a little bit about this idea of reward as well in, in Matthew 16, where it says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with, the, with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Now that, hopefully, now, will leave you with a really interesting dilemma because we've already read that Paul has debunked the idea that you can be qualified by anything that you do, that any reward, you know, sorry, that you'll get a reward of eternal life for doing good stuff. You know, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone deserves judgment. But then he kind of offers this, this carrot on a stick. But, you know, if you do good, you'll get in. It's a strange one, isn't it? It's really important then to keep in mind the bigger narrative of what Paul is trying to get here from Romans 1.17, that righteousness is only ever received. You're only ever good enough for God because you've accepted Jesus. You, you can wear the righteousness that Jesus gives to you. So he's really contrasting the righteousness of Jesus in Romans 1.17 versus the, the righteousness trying to be attained through good, um, good works, keeping the law. And it's, it's impossible to do that. That's why he says in Romans 2.25, you know, if you've read on, if you've been a bit bored and you're just reading on right now, or you've read it before, that, you know, being circumcised doesn't make a difference. You know, if you live like you're not circumcised, you might as well not be circumcised. James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the law and yet stumbles at just one point, breaks one of the laws, is guilty of breaking all of it. 
Matthew 5, Jesus presses this a little bit harder and says that whosoever looks at a woman with lust and has committed adultery with her in his heart, it's basically sinned. What Jesus is doing here is saying, you know, you can externally look like you're holier than anyone else. Profile, better than, superior to, you got it all together. I do this, I do that, I go to church, whatever it might be, I pray more, I'm, I don't live like the people on the telly or whatever it might be. But God doesn't just see the external, he sees the internal. Man looks at the outward, but God looks at the heart. And he examines the heart and he tests the heart. Paul is really ramming home, isn't he? This idea this any, that any righteousness can be achieved through anything that they do. Because it's just not possible. We cannot do it. Even our thought lives can lead us to sin. So he's got option A, Jesus. Option B, option A, obtainable. Option B, unobtainable, impossible. This is kind of mimics again in Galatians 3.11. It's clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scripture says it is through faith that a righteous person has life. He is demolishing. He is demolishing any stronghold or, or of self-righteousness that these listeners may have. And he's bringing them to that place where they recognize that Christ is the culmination of all those of the law, right? That he is righteousness and that for everyone who believes. And right at the end of the passage in verse 16, it said that really he's getting to the place that they can accept that God will judge them as well, including their secrets, thought stuff, the stuff that they do and no one else knows about, through Christ, through Christ. They'll be judged out through Christ, not through any works. I just want to breathe out a little bit here because we aren't just, you know, we're not just a group of people who are looking at an ancient audience, if you like, you know, and... Uh, looking at them thinking, ah, oh, see, they didn't get it, they didn't understand it. What they're doing is they're working out their gospel like we should be working out our gospel. You know, because none of us are outside of the judgment that we read about in chapter two. You know, we all struggle with similar behaviors. We know that we've been made right with God through Jesus Christ. We are reconciled to God, as it says, through Jesus Christ. But actually our behaviors and our actions can mimic that of those in that second people group, perhaps even sometimes that first people group. And John says, if, you, you know, if we say we have not sinned, we are deceiving ourselves. We're lying. And so I just guess want to highlight two things before I move on to my last section. Two ways in which we can mimic similar self-righteous attitudes and behaviours. The first one is being judgmental. You might think, I'm not judgmental. You know, but we can all slip into it because I do it at times. I magnify my strengths and I minimise my faults. I have a tendency to see others' issues and others' faults, you know. I just used to see the plank in someone else's eye, actually, rather than the plank of my own. You know, I'm a good person, Jim. Like, I live better than that person on the TV or that person on Instagram, or I live better than, you know, my mate or whatever it is. You know, Jim, don't you know I'm on the coffee rotor at church? I've been baptised, Jim. I pray regularly. I go to church. I'm part of a small group, you know. And what we do is those things begin to be the things that are qualifiers that we justify ourselves by. And then we kind of build up this impenetrable fortress of, of me, I think, sometimes. And that we become the standard or we become the benchmark. What we do is right, what others do is wrong. We may not always declare it, but it can come across in the way that we can display it, perhaps sometimes in our language, actually. You know, the way that we treat others, the way that we speak about them, we're flippant about them, we're not, we're sarcastic towards them. You know, we might, in, we might internally gossip about them, we might actually externally gossip about them. 
You know, we're considering ourselves better than them. We're superior. They're inferior. We don't want to apologize. Perhaps we struggle with apologizing to people, to recognizing that pride in us. So easy, isn't it, to point the finger at others and not ourselves. But when we do that, a little bit like that second people group, we are elevating ourselves. We're building this little platform. We declare ourselves a standard of being a bit more superior. And no one can touch us. We can't be judged by any of us. But there is no room for self-righteousness. If you've been made right by Jesus, there's no room for it. Because self-righteousness just, just not, doesn't work. Right? Self-righteousness has led you to a place where you've recognised that you're a sinner. That actually deep down you can be just as bad as other people. It just can't work. Self-righteousness actually is acknowledging that you need the righteousness offered by Jesus Christ. That you are bankrupt before God. And there's another form, I think, of self-righteousness, that having that attitude that is, that is complacency. If I'm honest with you, it's complacency. And it comes back to, I think, understanding the gospel, or understanding the gospels that we, that we, we, that we know. And this is something that the Methetes stuff I talked about right at the beginning is really, I've been wrestling with this, you know, on and off through my life anyway, but certainly in the last week or so. My gospel has really shaped my, my understanding of what it means to be a Jesus follower. And the impact, therefore, my gospel is, is so shaped by forgiveness that God cleans me up, that he deals with my mess and he sends me on, on my way. You know, that he cleans me up, that he... He deals with my mess, and he sends me my way, and then, he, and then I'll do something else wrong, and he, and he, and he cleans me up, and he, he deals with my mess, and he sends me on my way. And I think, you know, it's, that is part of the gospel, don't get me wrong, God's continuing love. His mercies in you every single day, definitely, but there's a weakness with the forgiveness gospel only, and it starts with you, and it finishes with you. It doesn't go anywhere often, those things. It doesn't have a big enough impact, and it gives us this full sense of security, you know, a kind of a get out of jail free card. It's, it's quite a comfortable gospel in some senses because we know that we can't be saved through anything that we do as followers of Jesus. So we receive Jesus' righteousness as a free gift and then it can kind of stop at that point. It's like Romans 3 is the last chapter in the book of Romans. Like there's nothing written after that. But Keith last week introduced um, another gospel, not a heretical one, don't freak out. Um, but a fuller one, a fuller one. He introduced this concept of the kingdom gospel. Um, and I've got a quote that I'd love to read to you. Hopefully this will come up on the screen as I read it so you can read it along with me. Um, it's from a book, Conversion and Discipleship, and uh, by Bill Hull. And it's, it's this, the quote is, in short, the kingdom gospel calls us to discipleship. Being a disciple of Jesus, learning from him and submitting to his leading and his teaching in the norm rather than the exception or the option. It calls us to become apprentices of Christ and learn from him how to live our life as though he were living it. If he were a plumber, what kind of plumber would he be? If he were an accountant, what kind of accountant would he be? This is the gospel for real life, kingdom gospel. In other words, the kingdom gospel speaks to ordinary people and brings transformation to ordinary lives as people listen to and obey the teachings of Jesus. In short, in short, the kingdom gospel is a call to discipleship. And discipleship is about obedience. It's acknowledging, like it says in Romans 6, that you've been saved from sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're now a slave to righteousness. 
that righteousness now, because, right, because Jesus is righteous, and you're a slave to him, he's your master, as it says Paul, the doulos stuff, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, um, that you're now a slave to Jesus, you're a slave, therefore, to righteousness, that your business is Jesus' business, and he's in the business of righteousness, right? So your business is living righteously. An unashamed disciple of Jesus lives righteously, and obedience, as it says in Romans 6, leads to righteousness. It leads to godliness. It leads to holiness, that sanctification of growing to become more like Jesus, your master. And the more you become like him, the more you act like him, right? Jesus, Jesus, the Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds, it says in uh, Psalm, 100, sorry, Psalm 11, verse 7. The Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds. The closer, the, the closer we are with Jesus, the proximity we have with Jesus affects the way that we live, affects our desire to want to live righteous lives, to live in unison with, with our master Jesus, right? And so we do that through obedience. We learn scripture, we know his commands, how to treat other people. You know, he, Jesus only saw what he, his father did, what, sorry, Jesus only did what he saw his father do. So we need to be the same. Jesus, what do you do? He gives us the spirit to guide us in that as well. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And the more we give space to, to being obedient to Jesus, to knowing scripture, his commands, to spending time with him by being led by the spirit, you know, the more we live righteously. I generally be the, believe that living righteously is not an option. It is a reflection. It's a reflection of our understanding of the fact that we've been made righteous. Now, I got married 13 years ago, which is crazy, I think, I think, anyway, uh, in uh, January 2008, the 19th, I got that right, so Abby can't tell me off. Um, and that's the day that we said we do. I do, we do, I do, we both said we do, so. Um, however, if someone asked me, do you, you know, prove to me that you love Abby, and I went, hang on, one second, uh, went through my files, not that I'm that organized, went through my files and got my marriage certificate out and went, ta-da, see, I love Abby. They'd probably be like, what? Anyway, if I then went to try and prove to Abby that I loved her, because she had a bit of a moment, she went, do you love me? Or whatever it might be, or, you know, what, not that she would do that, but anyway, um, I wouldn't go through my files again and go, see, I told you I loved you 13 years ago. So it's cool. Hopefully what I've got to do is point to things Quite recently, you know, of course I love you, Abby. Look, I didn't stack the dishwasher properly last week when I tried to do it. Or um, I, you know, I'm prepared to get on a plane even though I hate flying and going to warmer countries because you love the sun. Or because we went on that date night at home again because we can't get out at the moment. Or, you know, buy any flowers or wherever it might be. The proof of my relationship is in not a piece of paper from 13 years ago. It's on the ongoing impact of that relationship, my commitment to Abby, my investment in that relationship, my sacrifice and obedience to her as well, to the relationship the impact that it has on my life. Now the truth is, I could do none of those things and legally I'd still be married. But my point here is that being made righteous through Jesus doesn't just have a spiritual impact when you die, it has a physical impact right now. What we do matters, not because it confirms our salvation, but because it confirms our devotion. What we do matters, not because it confirms our salvation, but it actually confirms our devotion. It confirms our devotion. You know, one day, 
It says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will be judged for the things we do in the body, things we do when we're living. You know, now that judgment won't determine whether we get in or out or not. You know, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, Romans 8. But I don't want to stand before Christ with a get out of jail free card, you know. I want him to go, ah, oh, Jim, the fruits, look at all the fruits, all the righteous living by being obedient to me, by growing, becoming more like me, the trans being transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? I don't want to look at a few dates at a youth camp or a church course that I went on or like my attendance at a small group as proof of my devotion to him. You know, not those things are wrong, don't get me wrong, but righteous living is more than that. Jesus is looking for those acts of service, acts of service in his kingdom. James 2 puts it like this, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. When it comes to being an unashamed disciple, choosing to live righteously is a reflection of your devotion to Jesus. It really it should tackle our complacency, that self-righteousness. When I was writing this um, talk this week, um, I was reminded of a song by Tim Hughes, you know, uh, Living for Your Glory, in view of God's mercy, I offer my all. Yeah, that one. Uh, it's actually taken from Romans 12. And it says in this, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You know, in fact, you know, if you want to know what righteous living looks like, a guidance, <laughs> Romans 12, 13 and 14, brilliant. Early chapters of James, brilliant, you know. Romans 12, do not conform to the patterns of this world. Do not think of yourselves better than anyone else. Love sincerely. Honour those and honour others. You know, you do these things, you live righteously, not because, because, you know, you have to, to attain something. You do these things because you are justified, right? Not to be justified. You do these things because you, because you are reconciled, not to be reconciled. You do these things in view of God's mercy, not to get God's mercy. You know, as Paul says in Romans 8, if you belong to Jesus, you've received the Spirit. So let's be people, let, you know, may we be people that walk by, walk in the Spirit. We see its impact in our lives, but also in the lives around us as we live righteously. May we be obedient to and submit ourselves to Jesus through his word, through knowing what it means to not just be listeners of the word, but to be doers, to be active in working out our gospel, to obey the gospel, continuing to do good. I hope you're excited about this. I really hope you're excited about what it means for you to live righteously. What does it mean for you to pursue righteousness in your every single day, your every moment? I would love to hear from you actually. Now perhaps for some of you, perhaps for some of you, um, you identify with, this, with the people group too. And there is some self-righteous stuff there and the Holy Spirit is just prompting and prodding and bringing things to light that you know that you need to go back to the cross for and receive that forgiveness, right? Receive that forgiveness, that's such a key part of it, but also understand that then it's about righteous living, it's choosing to be obedient to Jesus and what he wants you to do. Well, perhaps it is that, you know, you recognise yourself as a people group one a little bit and this is new to you and you know, you know, you're, you, you you recognise now that perhaps some of the consequences of the things you're doing is not leading to eternal life, but eternal separation, the wrath of God. I just want to say to you, you know, 
that Jesus, Jesus' doubt deals with that wrath. You know, the wrath of God is satisfied through Jesus Christ. And if you, if you want to chat to me about that, or Keith about that, we'd love to hear from you. If you want to chat to me about some of the other stuff, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, my email is jim.privet at waypointchurch.org.uk and uh, Keith says keith.foster at waypointchurch.org.uk. You know, as we continue to work out the gospel, what it means to us, to where we're at right now in this journey, you know, with fear and trembling, understanding God's nature, his character, understanding that we'll all be judged, but if we accept Jesus, we are made righteous, nothing that we can do. We'd love to continue to unpack that with you. Please feel free to contact us. I want to finish with, with that song, the Tim Hughes song. I want to use this or give you an opportunity to use this as a chance to really reflect where you're at um, as you continue in this journey of the gospel and its impact. What it means to be an unashamed disciple of Jesus Christ. What it means to live righteously. So yeah, use, the, use, lose this, use this time together. Let's pray first. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you gave yourself for us, that you love us, that you poured yourself out. Lord, thank you that your, your grace is sufficient for all the things that we do, for all the shameful things that we do, the stuff that we do wrong, the stuff that we feel guilty over, Lord, those secret moments, those secret things. But Lord, bigger than that, that's just part of it. The good news is also that we are called to your purpose, not our own purpose. We are called as part of that to live righteously as unashamed disciples of you, to choose to do good behind the closed door and in front of people, to think good, to live by the Spirit, to see those fruits of the Spirit being developed in us, patience, kindness, self-control, goodness, faithfulness, so on. Lord, I just thank you that it's about you. It's not about us, it's about you. Help us as we continue this journey of understanding the gospel and its impact. Lord, help us stir up this desire to know your word, to follow you, to obey you. Jesus, I pray. May we fan into flame this, this passion for you. Yes, Jesus, thank you. Amen.